This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So basically, this entire 11-mile stretch, you have to do during low tide to be able to access anything. So it's fraught with peril. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I forget. Are they married? They're doing their <laughs> five-year. Oh, they, they won't. Be, no, they won't be married by <laughs> by the time they get to Shai Shai in, in the north. So yeah, you don't have to worry about like choosing the perfect <laughs> wedding gift for this one or any future anniversary. Oh, yeah, there won't be any future anniversaries <laughs> if you <laughs> hike this trail in November. <laughs> This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Matt Smith. And I'm Karen Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. Welcome to our mailbag episode, where we answer questions from listeners about a wide variety of topics, including the national parks, road trips, hiking trails, camping, and gear, just to name a few. Today, we're sharing our thoughts on whether a week is enough time to visit the Florida National Parks in addition to Virgin Islands National Park. What are some of our favorite waterfalls? And is it a good idea to camp in Olympic National Park along the Washington coast in November? Plus, some suggestions on where to catch the sunrise and sunset when visiting Acadia. All this and more coming up next. of August already, Matt? The summer is just flying by. Oh, it's over. You know how you can tell? By when candy corn shows up in the stores. <laughs> is it already there? I haven't seen it yet. It is. And you and I have had this long running debate about candy corn. And when the candy corn comes out, is it the leftover candy corn from the year before? Or is it brand new candy corn every year? I like to think it's brand new and fresh, and they just made it like the week before. Do you think that's possible? <laughs> where does the old candy corn go from the year before? You know, when it hits January, there's still a lot of candy corn left. What? Where does that go? You know, it probably has a shelf life of like 45 years. Yeah, I think it shows up next August, <laughs> and everyone thinks it's new candy corn, fresh. Yeah, unfortunately, you're probably right. But back to summer. It cannot be over. It can't be nearly over because it really seems like our summer just got started as far as hiking because we had such a late snow season here. The trails were covered with snow until, gosh, almost just a few weeks ago. Yeah, but it's like ringing a bell. As soon as the snow is cleared from those trails, you got to get out there and do it because snow's going to come back here before you realize it. And we got to 
hiked to all these great places in the mountains that we couldn't when the snow was covering the trails. So yeah, it's got a lot to do. You know, I think we have another good month or so before it starts turning cold and and it's going to start snowing at the higher elevation. So we need to get on it because (laughs) I have a lot of hikes that we still haven't done here in Washington. But some days we're inside recording podcast episodes <laughs> and not only podcast episodes but now we're st- we're starting to get a backlog of patreon episodes recorded mm-hmm. so we can populate those on our patreon page so that people who support us there have bonus content that's right sometime in september we'll yeah, watch it, that yeah it could be actually sooner than that kind of depends on we want to have several bonus episodes out there so that when people join, if people join right away, there's there's bonus content. And then, then we'll put more every month. We'll put more bonus content out there. That's right. So we'll be talking more in our next episode about how you can support our podcast um, by joining our Patreon account. We'll give you all the details then. And hopefully we will have come up with a better pitch than than the last episode. <laughs> I give, hope you're working on it. Give us money? <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, no. I, I, yes. I've got, I, you are never allowed to say that again. Why? Was that inappropriate? Is that inappropriate to say? Yes, it is. I don't know. I don't know what's appropriate or not. Clearly. <laughs> and that's the issue we face every week when we get in front of the microphone. Okay. Well, so we've got that to look forward to. Yeah, but it's, you know, it's been a kind of a wild summer already in terms of weather. Now, we've been very fortunate up here in the Pacific Northwest. We haven't had a lot of fires. Been pretty normal here, but Mm -hmm. we've had a lot of flooding around the country. Yeah. And one thing I don't think we've talked about on our podcast before, and we did... Um, we did talk about it on our social media accounts, is, of course, the huge flooding disaster in Yellowstone. Right. Yellowstone, that was a, a really an unbelievable flood. When you see the videos of it, there there was a couple of uh, maybe drone shots or helicopter shots of, of the flood as it was happening and washing away those roads. And even a house got swept away in the river. What was also, to me, really surprising about the Yellowstone flooding, how quickly they reopened sections of the park. You know, we heard from a lot of people when this disaster happened, they canceled their plans to go to Yellowstone for the summer. And then it seemed almost as if within days they had reopened a lot of those sections. They did a great job of getting the park open as much as they could as fast as possible. And they're even... Boy, they're rebuilding those roads in record time, which is just, it's fantastic. It's fantastic that they're able to do that. Yeah, so, you know, Yellowstone, there's, you know, still some road closures as we're talking about this late August of 2022, but they're working on them. Yeah, so the uh, the northeast entrance to Cook City, they've announced that that road is expected to reopen October 15th, which is fantastic because, of course, the town of Cook City, you know, has been cut off from the park and they've lost a lot of their tourism dollars. And the north entrance closure that cuts the town of Gardner off from the park, which has an even bigger impact. Because, of course, Gardner is bigger and has more restaurants and hotels and outfitters. So they also have been cut off, unfortunately, since the floods. And it's just been a huge blow to that community. Well, it sounds like the park is trying to get these roads reconstructed before winter. Yes. So, I mean, at least reconstructed enough so that traffic can flow. I know that they have some 
longer term plans to to work on the roads to to prevent this kind of uh, damage happening uh, by future floods. Yeah, and what's interesting, I read that they are actually. Uh, working on that old Gardner Road that connects Mammoth to Gardner. Uh, now, we haven't ever driven on that. It, it's on the backside of the Mammoth Hot Springs Hotel, and it was a one-lane dirt road that ran for four to five miles to Gardner. So it was it was to the west of the main road. So now they are taking that road, they're widening it to two lanes. Obviously, it won't be one way anymore. And that's what they're going to use to get people from Gardner into the park for the foreseeable future until they can rebuild that main road. And I think they want that old road to be something that they maintain going forward because it it's nowhere near the river. So it's not going to be susceptible to that, that same kind of flood damage. I was also reading that the Old Gardner Road is one of the oldest roads in the park. It was established in the 1880s as a stagecoach route. So that's kind of cool that they're going to be renovating this. And this will be, you know, this will be a lifeline to the town of Gardner. And it will get people in and out of the park at that north entrance. I think it could take years for them to rebuild that main road. And they hope to have the old Gardner Road open sometime in October as well. That would be amazing. Yeah, so that's going on in Yellowstone. Um, there's And there's been some other floods. Huge, shocking floods. One, that footage from Death Valley that we saw was unbelievable. Yeah, I thought when I first saw that footage that maybe it was some just out-of-the-way part of the park. That, that came right through Furnace Creek, which is just, that's the heart of the park cars swept away and then well and a lot of them just like buried you know a foot or two deep in just debris that was something i would never have imagined until it actually happened seeing that uh that flash flood come through there um, and then of course joshua tree had some floods too yeah yeah a lot of flooding and, and we should mention there there have been floods that have affected people's lives outside the national park st louis kentucky so it's been a tough flood year Yes. And unfortunately, in California, once again, it's been a really tough fire year. I know the fire that was in Yosemite National Park that was at the Mariposa Grove was um, was very frightening because they thought that the, the sequoias in that grove would burn. Fortunately, they, they contained it before a lot of damage was done. So is that going to, is that contained now? I mean, is, is that Mariposa Grove, is it safe now? Yes, the fire is completely out. Uh, the Mariposa Grove reopened in early August after being closed for, gosh, at least a month. I had mentioned in a previous podcast that um, in my wish bucket was to snowshoe in the Mariposa Grove in the winter. And of course, when I saw that fire raging, I thought that that was it, that, that I had missed my chance. So it is something to think about. And this leads us into our first mailbag question, which I think is a really great question. Do you want to read that, Matt? Yeah. So this first question is from Amber. And she writes, what are the parks you would recommend people prioritize seeing over the next few years? Are there parks in serious jeopardy of losing their natural wonders due to climate and environmental factors that we should try to see as soon as possible before it's too late? Yeah, so good question. Um, 
probably a couple years ago, we wouldn't have even have thought of this particular question, but now it's just right in front of us every every year, it's particularly in the summertime. Um, yeah, so there are. Yeah, and we jotted down a few notes here, a few specific parks, but I have to say, judging on what has been going on the past year or two with the drought and with climate change and with the wildfires, I would say almost any park in the West is in danger. Wouldn't you agree, Matt? Well, yeah. You know, the I, I guess I wouldn't have thought that, a, like I said, a couple of years ago. But um, the point is, you kind of don't know what could threaten these parks. I wouldn't have thought two months ago that Death Valley was in threats of floods, mm-hmm. right? So uh, I think the overall theme here is, uh, one, if there are places you want to see, you should you should go see them. Yes. Whenever you can. I mean, that's just an overall, you know, bit of life advice. Um, But we do have some suggestions on specific parks that have have been particularly vulnerable in the last few years. So we'll talk about those. Right. Uh, The first one uh, on our list is Sequoia National Park. Now, a lot of us know about the wildfires that came through, but also we didn't know about this until we visited in May. And we drove through and we saw these large areas of the forest that were just completely dead. And this wasn't fire related. This was, we found out from a ranger later, this was due to drought and climate change. And she told us that the winters there are not as cold as they used to be. And they're not cold enough to kill the bark beetles that have been destroying the trees. And so now these huge uh, swaths of forest have just been decimated. Yeah, it really was striking when we drove that road. What was at the south? It's the road leading south out of the park. We haven't driven that for, I don't know, four or five years. Uh, yeah, a lot of dead trees. And there have been several fires in the park that have killed the sequoia trees. Yes. And you know, it used to be that giant sequoias would coexist with fire. For thousands of years, they survived fires. But now, starting in 2015, the fires have become much higher in severity. And they've killed large giant sequoias in much greater numbers than ever before. When I was doing some research, I read that six fires that occurred between 2015 and 2021 killed many large sequoias in numerous groves across the Sierra Nevada. More than 85% of all giant sequoia grove acreage burned. That's a huge number. Right. Now, when we say it burned, that doesn't necessarily mean all those trees died. Right. But there could be significant damage in, in that 85%. Yeah, within Sequoia National Park, 369 sequoias died during those fires. So if you want to visit Sequoia, we'd recommend sooner rather than later. All right, what's our next park, So moving on to Glacier National Park. Now, this is something, you know, that's been known for for quite a while. The park was founded in 1910, and at the time, it had over 100 glaciers. Yeah, and now there are only a couple of dozen left that are large enough to be considered glaciers, and all of them have suffered tremendous melt, according to the park. Yeah, so that's something uh, to see the glaciers in Glacier National Park. You want to, you'd want to do that uh, sooner rather than later. You know, and another park that is threatened is Saguaro. <laughs> did I say that right? You did, Saguaro. Great. 
Yes, I I did not know about this until recently. And one of the biggest threats to the saguaros is exotic plants. They are out competing the native plants for, you know, the limited water and the nutrients in the soil. Exotic plants? Mm -hmm. What do you mean by exotic plants? Are they from faraway places? (laughs) Actually, they probably are. They're non-native plants. I don't know why they call them exotic. And one of the... um, Biggest threats in saguaro is the buffalo grass. The buffalo grass, not to be confused with buffalo grass. Yeah, I don't which, think which there I don't is, even know if that's a thing. I don't think that's a thing. It's buffalo grass. So a park spokesperson said, "If we don't take action now, fifty years from now, we'll be calling this place Buffalo Grass National Park instead of Saguaro National Park." All right, so you got the buffalo grass. See, and another thing that I wouldn't have thought was threatening our national parks. Right, so go see those saguaros while you can. Now, of course, with the massive drought in the West, I think most people know that Lake Mead and Glen Canyon National Recreation Areas, the reservoirs are drying up. Yeah, we might be a little late on this piece of advice because those lakes are down considerably. Yeah, I'm not even sure how much uh, water recreation you can do on those anymore. I know at Lake Powell, most of those boat docks are now inaccessible to boats, houseboats and things. Who knows what the future holds in terms of rainfall and snowpack for the Colorado Plateau, but it's it's not good right now. Uh, It's very, very serious. So another park where the namesake is endangered would be Joshua Tree National Park. And the Joshua, so tell me, why are the Joshua trees threatened? I don't don't know this. What's happening with the Joshua trees? Well, it's climate change again. Apparently, they're failing to reproduce at the drier, lower elevations because of the hotter temperature. So they're seeing, they're looking into the future and seeing fewer and fewer Joshua trees. Also, the other thing I read, and this doesn't affect the park because they're protected, but as people are moving into that area, of course, there are Joshua trees that grow outside the park, and they are not protected as of yet. So they are being taken down to build homes and roads and businesses and things like that. They're being they're being killed. They're being taken out. And so if you're in that area, another huge Joshua tree environment is the Mojave National Preserve. Although 25% of the Joshua trees burned recently, and they also have some road damage due to some recent floods as well. Right. You know, that 25% of Joshua trees that burned, that was along that SEMA road, one of our favorite areas in the Mojave Preserve. We always come in that way. We always stop and hike among those Joshua trees. So that was heartbreaking to see when so many saguaros burned. Yeah, we're going to have to go back there and visit to see how many of them actually survived. That's right. But the most threatened national park of all is Everglades National Park in Florida. So there's something called the Conservation Outlook Assessment, and that assesses the health of all the world heritage sites. And the Everglades has been rated as critical, with a trend of deteriorating. The major issues are water quantity, quality, invasive species, and climate change. And one of the worst threats to the Everglades is the changed water flow caused by the system of dams and canals that were built to divert water away from sugar farms and new developments. And, you know, the Everglades, it's home to about 20 species that are either threatened or endangered, including the Florida panther, the green sea turtle, and the American crocodile. You know, I was hoping when we visited the Everglades that we would see a panther. Wouldn't that have been cool? It would be cool. They're 
really striking looking, but we've never seen one. No, we haven't. But you know what creature is taking over the Everglades? The Burmese python? Yes. It's like something out of a horror movie. Yeah, you should have never let our python go into the wild 25 years ago when you did that. (laughs) It wasn't me because I would never have a snake as a pet, but apparently that's exactly what happened. People who had gotten pythons as a pet, I I don't really know who does that, but apparently there are people who do that. They decided uh, they didn't want them anymore, and they released them into the Everglades area. And since then, they have reproduced wildly, and now they are uh, wrecking all kinds of havoc on the park. They're eating all the small animals. They're destroying the vegetation. And now they have python hunters. I know. We follow an account on Instagram, the the Burmese python hunters of Florida, and they post photos and videos catching these enormous snakes in the Everglades. Yeah, I, I don't know how that becomes your hobby, to be a either. python hunter or profession. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe stamp collecting would be good. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, anyway, not to discourage anyone from visiting Everglades because of the pythons, uh, apparently they they live down in the murky water. So unless you're wading through a swamp, you're probably not going to encounter a python. Anyway, visit the Everglades soon. Poor Everglades is facing a a huge uh, host of issues. Right. So not to be too much of a downer, but uh, I think it's a valid question. Yes. uh, Which parks are threatened and that you might want to go see sooner rather than later. And, And those are a few examples. Yes, Amber, thanks for the great question. I think it's something that everybody should be considering as they plan their their trips for the near future. This episode is brought to you in part by Rumpel, introducing the world to better blankets. When we first partnered with Rumpel, we were excited about their National Park collection of blankets. And since then, they've continued to expand their line. Now they offer blankets featuring NFL and college team logos, blankets with designs created by artists, and even a Nanoloft flame blanket that's fire-resistant for when you're hanging around a campfire or a fire pit. Rumble is the best outdoor blanket in terms of comfort and warmth, but what's really important to us is that their core line of blankets uses 100% post-consumer recycled materials, and they recycle over 5 million discarded plastic bottles through their supply chain every year. They're also a proud member of 1% for the Planet, which means they donate 1% of all revenue to environmental nonprofits. So check out all their blankets and other products on their website at www.rumple.com. That's R-U-M-P-L. Okay, Karen, what's our next question? Okay, this one comes from Matthew, and he writes... I am a sucker for a waterfall. If a trail or a hike has a waterfall along the way or the final destination, it goes right to the top of the to-do list. What are your favorite waterfalls or trails to a waterfall that you have hiked to over the years? Okay. Yeah, I mean, part of the answer is it depends on when you go because in some cases you have these spectacular waterfalls that are only running at certain times of the year. So you got to know not only the destination, but what what's the best time of year to go. Right. When we first visited Yosemite, and a lot of people would say that Yosemite is 
the best waterfall park. We went in mid-September and the waterfalls were not flowing. So it was not impressive. And, and I know that in the spring, it's a completely different place, but it does hinge a lot on when you go. So if you're going to visit the beautiful waterfalls in Yosemite, you definitely want to go in the spring. You know, another uh, fall and and one of my favorite waterfalls would have to be Havasu Falls. Uh, we won't get into this much because the area is closed, but Havasu Falls is beautiful on the Havasupai Nation uh, reservation there. Uh, we've hiked to that. It's been closed since COVID began. Yes, Havasu Falls was one of the most beautiful waterfalls we've ever seen. Now, this is located in Arizona. It is in the Grand Canyon, but it is also, as you said, Matt, on an Indian reservation. So you do need to have a permit when they reopen. You need to have a permit to camp down there or stay in the lodge, and they're very difficult to get. Now, I just looked at their website. They're hoping to reopen in 2023. One of the issues is all of the people who had reservations in 2022 get to extend their reservation into 2023. So if you're interested in Havasu Falls, start looking at their website when they reopen reservations, and maybe you'd have a chance for 2024 or beyond. But it is really spectacular. Right. For waterfall lovers, that's a must-see. Another waterfall that's very popular in the national park system is the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone, the Lower Falls. That's the biggest waterfall in all of Yellowstone. It's over 300 feet. Yes, and it's it's the second most photographed spot in Yellowstone uh, with Old Faithful coming in first. So there are numerous views of the falls that you can stop, get out, and look. There's Inspiration Point, Grand View Point, Lookout Point, Artist Point, lots of viewpoints that are absolutely stunning. Our favorite one, which we did, gosh, back in 2016, was that Uncle Tom's Trail. Yeah, I like that, uh, although it was uh, a lot of stairs. I mean, it, it's a sturdy set of stairs that takes you down to uh, the bottom of the falls, but it's it's over 300 steps. So uh, right now it's closed for maintenance. Unfortunately, it's been closed for years. And I know people are really disappointed because I keep reading reviews to see if it's reopened. And still this summer in 2022, it's closed. I think it closed maybe in... 2019 or I don't know it has been years and so I'm not sure what's going on there at the at Uncle Tom's Trail but keep an eye on that because once it reopens that is cool you actually walk to the bottom of the falls you know when the falls are flowing you get wet it's the spray is hitting you I mean it was very cool to see so moving on from Yellowstone let's go up to Oregon there are some amazing waterfalls in Oregon yeah, so Oregon is known as the waterfall state. There are actually a lot of waterfalls throughout the state, but there is one main corridor. The waterfall corridor is in the Columbia River Gorge, which is just east of Portland. Tons of waterfalls. Yeah, there's a stretch of road there that's about 80 miles long. And a lot of these waterfalls are accessible year-round. Matter of fact, we have gone to these waterfalls probably more frequently in the winter than in the summer, just because we're traveling through that area anyway. I think it's called the Historic Columbia River Highway. Yes, that parallels Interstate 84. And this is um, on the south side of the Columbia River. So it's on the Oregon side. Once you cross over the river, then you're in Washington. But it's very popular in the summer. So our suggestion would be to go 
in the spring when the waterfalls are flowing because in the summer they get so many crowds that they now have a timed use vehicle permit system. It runs from May 24th through September 5th if you're driving anywhere in that corridor from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Now, these permits are sold on recreation.gov, and you also need a separate permit if you're just visiting Multnomah Falls, which is a very spectacular waterfall. Yeah, I think that's the um, that's the highlight of the area, the Multnomah Falls, and it is beautiful. You just have to see it. You can see pictures of it on Instagram and, and other places. But yeah, the the falls with the cool bridge in front of Multnomah Falls is very picturesque. Mm. A lot of people take their photos there. Yes, it's amazing. So Matthew, if you're interested in this, there is a lot of information online. There are books about this. You can look at a map and see which waterfalls you want to visit, which ones are basically a pullout, which ones you have to hike to. And so you could easily spend a couple days here because you also have the cute town of Hood River, which has breweries and it's uh, it's just a darling town. You have the Dalles, you have places to stay. So this is a great destination for waterfall lovers. And also in the state of Oregon is Silver Falls State Park. And we visited this for the first time within the last six months or so. And it was it was pretty surprising how cool the waterfalls were there. Yes, it was one of the best state parks we've ever been to. It's called the crown jewel of the Oregon State Park System, and, and for good reason. Now, Silver Falls is located near Salem, Oregon, and this is south of Portland, just to kind of give you a general idea. But um, I thought this park felt like a national park, didn't you, Matt? It did, and it had a lot of infrastructure that was well-built, solid, like national park-looking um style and and architecture because the CCC built a lot of that infrastructure back in the 30s. That's right. They built trails and rock walls and bridges and stairs. And of course, the South Falls Lodge, which is right there, all very uh, National Park rustic looking. And our favorite thing, so we went for the day, our favorite thing there was we hiked the the Trail of the Ten Falls, and that was an amazing hike. Yeah, it was about eight-mile loop from the main parking lot there. Didn't seem terribly strenuous. We were there in March. The water was running high. It was a cool day. It was actually, I think, perfect time to go yes. uh, because it was cool. Yeah, and it's the only place that I can remember where you're able to walk behind a couple of the waterfalls. Yes, that was such a unique experience. The trail actually goes under and behind the the waterfalls. I think there are like four waterfalls that have the trail that runs uh, behind them. And what a cool experience to stand behind this waterfall and have the water thundering down. And when we say you walk behind the waterfall, this wasn't a trickle. This was a, a torrent <laughs> Of a waterfall and you're behind it. So yeah, that, that's very cool. So if you're into waterfalls, I mean, you got you to gotta make a trip to Silver Falls State Park in Oregon sometime. Absolutely. And again, please go in the spring because if you wait till the fall and the waterfalls aren't running, you will think that we have steered you wrong. You want to go when these falls are full. Uh, you know, there's snow melt and there's the, of course, we have the rainy season that is making those waterfalls pop in the spring. Also, we would suggest we were there, I think, on a Tuesday. Not very many people there. This place can get crowded on the weekends. So uh, if you can go on a weekday, that would be best as well. Okay, Matthew, those are some of our waterfall suggestions. 
Karen, do we have another question? We do. This email is from the Nelsons, and they wrote, We're looking at planning a trip to South Florida. Is it possible to hit all four parks in a week without feeling exhausted by the end? Talking about dry Tortugas, Biscayne, Everglades, and Virgin Islands. Yeah, well, that is a lot to see. I think you can do it. I I think we did it in a week or less when we did all four of those parks. Um, But part of it depends on where you're coming from, Right. right? I mean, if you're coming from the West Coast, then... It takes time to get over there just just to get there, and you got some time change. That's right, and it also depends, of course, on on your age and on your energy level. So it's hard for us to really answer this question completely since we don't know you. You know, we know people who are exhausted by travel, and they have to change planes, and they have to get up early, and the, and the travel day is exhausting. And we know people who thrive on that, and they love to fly, and they love to travel. So it's really important to know your energy level when you're planning a trip like this. And if you do need to build in you know, an extra day or two to rest, then that's up to you. Um, but we will talk briefly about a short itinerary, because Matt, as you said, we did the four parks in a week. Right, we did. I think we did four days in Virgin Islands, and then a day each in the three Florida parks. And of course, you could spend more time. Certainly, could spend more time in Everglades than just one day. Sure. Um, I yeah. think Dry Tortugas a day was enough for us, and, and so was uh, Biscayne Bay. As far as exhaustion level, you know, a lot of these parks, the Florida parks you're probably doing a boat tour and there's probably a lot of sitting. So for instance, when we did Dry Tortugas, we took that Yankee Freedom boat tour. Uh, It was an all-day boat tour to Fort Jefferson. And it was a lot of sitting, sitting on the boat, sitting on the beach. You know, we toured the fort, but it was not exhausting in any way. Right. It wasn't physically exhausting. I thought the boat ride was fantastic. I mean, you're out there in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. It was a beautiful day when we were there and sitting on the beach. It was was great. It's beautiful weather. Mm-hmm. So we enjoyed it, but yeah. that wasn't exhausting. No, it wasn't. And same with Biscayne. Now, the Biscayne National Park Institute has a boat tour that you can do. It takes you across the bay to some little islands over over there. That's one of the things we did. Again, we're sitting on a boat mostly. They do have some snorkeling and paddling tours if you want to be a little more adventurous. But again, wasn't exhausting. <laughs> right. Now, yeah. if you're a snorkeler or a scuba diver and, and you're going to do all of that, that's a whole nother set of activities. That could take it out of you. I like to stay above the water. <laughs> so um, I don't know how exhausting that activity is. <laughs> and then, of course, at the Everglades, a lot of people do the airboat tours. Again, you're sitting on a boat. Uh, we'd recommend going to Shark Valley where we rented bikes. But you can also do a tram tour, which is a two-hour tour where you're sitting on a tram. So you can kind of make some of these days less exhausting or more exhausting, depending on the activities that you want to do. Yeah. So let's talk in a little bit more detail about how to get to Virgin Islands, though. Okay. The way we did it, we flew from Miami to St. Thomas, of course, through a thunderstorm and got diverted to Puerto Rico and sat there on the tarmac for a couple of hours. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then once we were in St. Thomas, we got a shuttle to the ferry dock. It seemed like that was a good half an hour, 45 minute ride. Then took the ferry over to the island of St. John, and we stayed at the Keneal Bay Resort, which was heavily damaged by two hurricanes in 2017, and it's been closed since then. But there are other resorts in Cruise Bay, and of course, lots of activities to do there. 
Right. And again, it's totally up to you. You can lay on some of the beautiful beaches and work on your tan, or you could do some short hikes. You could go snorkeling, um, or you could just sit at one of the outside bars and and drink some painkillers, which is their signature cocktail there. So that can be as strenuous or as... um, Not strenuous. (laughs) Not strenuous as you would like it to be. That's our answer. I think you can do it in a week if you uh, pace yourself and, and not be too exhausted. And uh, yeah, it should be hopefully warm and sunny and a, and a great winter getaway for you. Okay. Karen, what is our next question? Okay. This question comes from Mitchell in Georgia. I have a question for you guys regarding backpacking in Olympic National Park. My wife and I will celebrate our fifth wedding anniversary this November 3rd, and we're wanting to take a trip somewhere that we could utilize all of the backpacking gear we have accumulated over these five years. I realize early November is not an ideal time to backpack in many of the national parks, but we were wondering if you had any advice on backpacking for a night or two in Olympic. We were considering hiking along the coast from Ozette to the Shai Shai Beach area to camp for a night, then hike out and drive to the Ho Rainforest to camp along the Ho River Trail for a night, and then hike back out. Okay, Mitchell. (laughs) November can be, I mean, the weather might not be all that great in November. November's like our worst month here. Yeah, there's storms that come off the Pacific Ocean in November, and... um, they can be pretty they can be pretty rough. Right. So let's talk for a second about your Ozet to Shy Shy hike. This should only be done on the absolute best of circumstances, meaning a gorgeous summer day if you are a very experienced backpacker because it's very strenuous. It's about eleven miles one way up the coast, and this is not a sandy beach that you're walking on. Yeah, some parts of it may be sandy, but a lot of parts of it are rocky, and you're going to have to do headland trails. So you have to hike up the headlands, through the trees, and then back down on the beach. And when we say hike up the headlands, really what we mean is you find the rope that somebody left you You know, you're climbing yourself up using the rope, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 feet to the forest and hiking through it and then back down and maybe doing that a few times with a pack on. With a pack on and it's raining heavily and it's windy as hell. And also some of the the beach areas by Ozette have slippery bowling ball sized rocks instead of sand. We have hiked around Ozette. It's extremely difficult because they're wet and slippery. So this is not easy hiking even on the beach there. One more note, you also have to cross the Ozette River, which during high tide can be chest deep or over your head. So basically this entire 11 mile stretch, you have to do during low tide to be able to access anything. So it's fraught with peril. Yeah, (laughs) I I forget. Are they married? They're doing their... Five year. Oh, they they won't. No, they won't be married by (laughs) by the time they get to Shy Shy in in the north. So yeah, you don't have to worry about like choosing the perfect (laughs) wedding gift for this one or any future anniversary. Yeah, there won't be any future anniversaries (laughs) if you (laughs) hike this trail in November. That kind of simplifies the trip a little bit. One more point. Well, actually, a couple more points. It gets dark early here starting in November. So by probably about 5 o'clock, it's going to be pitch dark and you're sitting in your tent. Also, if you 
did manage to make it up to Shai Shai, you would have to then the next day turn around and do the whole thing back because obviously you wouldn't have two cars. You wouldn't be able to leave a car at Shai Shai and drive out. It's it's a very remote location to the very northwest of the state. So uh, so this would be a, just a big no from us, Mitchell. <laughs> it's a pretty hard no. Yeah. <laughs> However, if you really do want to backpack, you know, you mentioned the Ho River Trail. Now, I think that's an option. Or maybe one of the other beaches. The thing is, you want to be fairly close to your car so you can bail if it gets gnarly. <laughs> yeah. And look, it could be a beautiful weather week when you're here. That's possible, but you need to be prepared for it not being that way, right? right. You have to be prepared for a rain or a storm. Um, so, you know, and it's a challenge when you're coming from out of town and trying to plan this, you know, months ahead of time. And if you get a good weather week, that would be spectacular. Uh-huh. Hiking hiking up the whole river valley there. That trail's beautiful. Uh-huh. It's treed. The river's cool. But you want, you want a plan B. Exactly. And one thing I think a lot of people from out of state don't realize is that, so we talked about this on our Olympic uh, National Park podcast, we did a backpacking trail, and this was the end of September. And it, it rained on us the entire day. And it was probably in the 40s. And we almost were suffering from hypothermia. It does not have to get to freezing to be in serious trouble. We thought we were going to die. We, we honestly and, and, did. And, and that's not even a joke. Right. Um, I knew we were in trouble when we were standing there trying to find a place to put our tent. And first, there was no ground that didn't have standing water. Right. And so there was that. And then while we were standing there looking at where we were going to put the tent, you fell over into the mud. <laughs> Nothing caused you to fall. I you know. just fell. I, my legs gave Your out. Your legs gave out. You fell into the mud. And you made no attempt to get up. <laughs> and, and I knew at that point we were in trouble. I know. Because I, was... I literally had to help, like, not help you up, because I think you could have done it on your own, but, like, encourage you. <laughs> To get up. <laughs> to continue of, on with life. To continue on with life. We were that cold. Yeah, and we can laugh about it now, but it could not have been more miserable. And it was kind of serious because we were, my teeth were chattering uncontrollably and I had the shakes. I mean, I couldn't get myself warm. So anyway, Mitchell, I think you kind of get the idea. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, but you you guys should do it. You'll you'll have a lot of fun. But hey, we have we do have a, a couple of suggestions. I would suggest Crescent Lake Lodge has some wonderful cabins that are open all year round. I believe the Roosevelt cabins have fireplaces and you're on the lake and the, it's not crowded in November. So you've got that or I think Kalaylock Lodge cabins are open. That's on a bluff above the ocean. And you also have uh, Quinault Lodge. Yeah, Quinault Lodge. That's nice. Yeah, Yeah, stay somewhere with the roof over your head. Exactly. It will be romantic and no one's teeth will be chattering and no one will be drenched. And I think that would be the perfect way to spend your your five-year anniversary. (laughs) We sound pretty soft, don't we? Yes, but... But we are. Yeah, we are. Anyway, thanks for the question, Mitchell. I hope you guys have a very happy anniversary. And yeah, drop us a line and let us know what you decide to do. Okay. Uh, Is that it? Do we have any other questions? Yes. We have one more question. We have a question Mm -hmm. from Rachel. Yes. And Rachel wrote... 
My questions are about Acadia National Park. We plan to visit late May, early June, and stay in the South area in the yurts. My wife is not a morning person, and I'm wondering about possibly focusing on sunset at Cadillac Mountain instead of sunrise. I know sunrise is the big ticket item, but I wonder your thoughts on catching sunrise alone somewhere else and getting sunset with my wife. I imagine both are pretty amazing. Any other feedback on Acadia is greatly appreciated. We will be there three to four days. I always wonder what people mean by when they say somebody is not a morning person. (laughs) (laughs) We're not morning people, though. (laughs) I think we're morning people. Matt, how many times have we gotten up at 3 a.m. to drive to someplace to watch the sunrise? Well, how many? I don't none. None. That's that's, zero. No, that's a middle of the night person. (laughs) (laughs) A morning person's like you know six thirty. Well, no, I mean, if if we're camping or if we're backpacking, yes, we are awake to see the sunrise. But do we drive someplace to catch a sunrise? We do not. So we sympathize with your wife, Rachel. And good for you for looking for some alternatives that make both of you happy. And we do have some suggestions. We do. First of all, we have an entire episode on Acadia National Park. It's episode number 73. Yes. So you got all that. How, how's that for cross-promoting uh, our other episodes? Nice, Matt. And you yeah. just whipped that I, number off the top of your just, head like you knew it. Yeah, episode 73. <laughs> <laughs> so there are a lot of other great places for you to catch sunrise, Rachel, by yourself. Probably the second most famous place to go to see sunrise is the Bass Harbor Head Lighthouse. You will not be alone if you make the trek out there. That's a very popular place for photographers to go. The lighthouse isn't in the main section of the park. It's located in the southwest section of Mount Desert Island. Still in the national park, just not the section that everybody goes to. So, Rachel, if you haven't been to Bass Harbor Head Lighthouse, the spot where the photographers take the photos of the sunrise and of the lighthouse is out on some giant boulders that you have to kind of scramble on. So make sure you wear appropriate footwear. You don't want to show up in flip-flops because you have to walk on these somewhat slippery rocks to get out far enough to get a, a good view of the lighthouse. Right. When you look at the lighthouse for the first time and you have the images of all these photographs in your mind, you think, well, that can't be it because how how could you possibly get this angle? And then you realize, oh, you have to go out into the ocean right. and, and step on one of those large boulders to get that angle of the lighthouse. Yeah. Right. Yeah, definitely worth it. But you could also go to Otter Point or Thunder Hole. Yes. I just like those names. I don't even know where they are. (laughs) (laughs) Otter Point and Thunder Hole. They're they're at the south end of the park. They're right on the coast coastline there. So those are great spots as well. There are actually a lot of spots to watch the sunrise. And in answer to your question, Cadillac Mountain is a great spot to watch the sunset also. Not just sunrise, but sunset. So you could take your wife there to catch the sunset together. Well, right. One of the reasons it's a great place to watch the sunset is you can drive to the top. Yes. And uh, park in the west lot. That's Mm -hmm. I guess that's the place to be to watch the sunset. However, you need to know that they are on a timed entry reservation system. 
That, yeah. r- that road is. And that's right. Because it gets so crowded and the parking lot fills up. You know, in the past, we have driven up there and circled and circled trying to find a spot. And now you need a timed entry reservation. This year, you needed it from May 25th through October 22nd. I don't know if next year the dates will be the same, but I'm guessing they'll be similar. Yeah. So they offer these reservations 90 days ahead of time, but they don't offer all of the reservations 90 days ahead of time. It's only something like 30%. And they hold back others till two days before. Right. So if you miss it, the 90 days ahead of time reservation, you're not locked out. Right. Try two days ahead of time when the other 70% become available. That's right. And I believe it costs $6 to get this permit to park up there. Of course, that doesn't include the park entrance fee of 30 or $35. This is a separate deal. Yeah, so I hope that helps. And we have not seen sunset from up there, but I would imagine it's spectacular. Yeah, we'll have to do that someday since we're not, as you said, morning people. <laughs> sunset is good for us. So thanks, Rachel. Thanks for your email. All right, what else do we have left, Karen? Is that it for the questions for this mailbag exclamation point episode? That is it. Now, if you have a mailbag question for us, that can be answered in five to ten minutes. (laughs) (laughs) I'm now adding that on to my little spiel because some of the um, mailbag questions are are very... um, in depth and would require an entire episode to answer. We can't do seven part questions. Uh, If it can be answered in five to 10 minutes, please send it to us at mattandkarensmith at gmail.com. Yeah. And we're doing these mailbag episodes, gosh, about once a month and sometimes even more often than that. So there's plenty of opportunities in the future for us to answer your questions. Yeah, and we love to get these because um, we don't know the questions that people have and, and what people would like to hear us talk about. So it's always interesting to us to see what, you know, what people are wondering about. And it's it's fun for us to talk about. So actually, Mailbag is one of my favorite uh, favorite episodes to do. We have a lot of great episodes coming up in September that we're working on. Yeah, so check back with us on those. And also, we'll have a lot of really fun Patreon episodes available as well. 